Welcome to The Source. I'm Caitlin Collins, and tonight we have just been watching a dramatic scene play out at the home of the suspected gunman in May, who I should note is considered armed and dangerous and still on the run tonight. For hours, law enforcement surrounded what is the last known address of 40-year-old Robert Card. It's the second time that they have been at his house today, and we have seen some local law enforcement leaving the home this evening, but there is still some activity that we are monitoring. The alleged gunman in last night's shooting that killed 18 and injured more than a dozen people is still at large tonight. And we're going through these updates. The devastated city of Lewiston, Maine is still locked down. Businesses are closed. People are understandably terrified. I want to get straight to CNN's Brian Todd, who is in Bowdoin, Maine, has been covering all of this as we've seen just this swarm of activity happening outside this address tonight. Brian, I mean, I believe we just saw some of these forces who were there leaving. What do we know right now? Right, Caitlin. It seems that in the last couple of minutes, right before you came on, uh, the final law enforcement vehicles that were there uh, seemed to have pulled out. They just kind of streamed right past us here. I'd say there were three or four of them, but uh, just moments before that, there were about seven law enforcement vehicles that had pulled out. They had kept a vehicle uh you know, basically right in front of the house with a spotlight trained on the house uh, right behind me here. Now it's complete darkness. So we do get an indication now just from the physical eye on the ground that we're seeing that law enforcement has left the area. But this has been uh, quite a, a, a tense scene, I can say, over the last two hours. Um, they had been here earlier today. They had used flashbangs as they approached the house, seemingly in an effort to uh, possibly shock anybody who might be in the house. That is, we're told that is standard procedure. We're not sure exactly what they did at the house at that time, but then they all left. Then at about 7 p.m. Eastern time, roughly two hours ago, a lot of law enforcement assets just flooded back into this area very quickly. Uh, they set up a perimeter around it. They had air assets like drones, helicopters, and other things. They had canine teams out here. Uh, they had a lot of tactical, heavily armored vehicles here. They surrounded the house. They trained a spotlight on the house. They had flashing lights all around. Um, and then we started to observe some dialogue. It was one-way dialogue. It was a law enforcement officer on a bullhorn with a spotlight on the house talking to whoever might be in the house. Now, since then, we've gotten indications that it was unknown whether he was in the house or not. And the fact that they just all have left, uh, I would say, likely indicates that he was not in the house. But at that time, they did not know whether he was in the house or not. So they started to give commands like, please come out with your hands up come out with nothing in your hands, uh, come to the front of the house and follow our instructions, come to the front of a truck, there was seemingly a truck in the driveway there, and follow our instructions. They even made kind of almost personal appeals to whoever might be in there, saying, we know this could be intimidating for you, uh, we don't want anyone else to get hurt. So that led us uh, to believe that, wow, they might have actually pinned him down in the house. But the more this kind of played out, Caitlin, and the more information that we got from our colleagues working their sources was, this was pretty much due diligence, that they just had to kind of use these maneuvers for everyone's safety and uh, to make sure that um, he actually was not there. And at the beginning of that whole sequence at about 7 p.m. Eastern time, we had our camera lights on like we do now, and um, law enforcement personnel came right up to us and said, turn those cameras off right now. This is um, creating a danger for law enforcement. So we yeah. kind of waited for the last two hours in, in darkness, but filming that scene that you saw behind me. Brian, do we know what made them come back to the house if they were already there earlier today? 
We don't know exactly, uh, Caitlin, but they did say that the, you know, again, they're, they're executing warrants. They're doing their due diligence. Uh, they may have, um, not had a particular warrant for something that they needed and then came back, or they may have uh, very well gotten a tip from someone, or they, they, we, we do it, we did uh, find out from sources that there was something about what was going on at the house that gave them an indication that something or someone might be there. Now that obviously is very vague, uh, but uh, they've come out and, you know, obviously just encased this house for the last two hours to make sure that that was not the case. And they have just pulled out. It's completely dark and quiet. So it seems that they're satisfied. Fine, Todd. I know you'll continue to keep an eye on things there. I also want to go to John Berman, who is in Lewiston tonight outside of Schmenji's Bar and Grill. That is, of course, one of the spots where these shootings occurred just a little over 24 hours ago. I mean, John Berman, as we are seeing all of this action happen at this last known address of the suspected shooter here, I mean, that doesn't mean uh, things are over. We are told that there are searches happening in other places. What are you seeing in Lewiston tonight? Yeah, there absolutely are searches going on in other places. Just to situate you, I am in Lewiston. This is where the second of the two shootings took place outside Shemenji's Bar. It's about 10 minutes away from here that the first shooting took place at the bowling alley. You can see there on the map, uh, Lewiston is, is where I am. Lisbon is where the shooter's car was found by a boat launch. And just south of Lisbon on that map is where Brian Todd is in Bowden. It's about 15 miles from here. And this whole area from Lewiston to Bowden and then a little bit south and a little bit north of that is basically under lockdown right now. There have been these shelter in place orders that have been extended through the night where people have been told to secure their homes, to secure their cars. And I've got to tell you, everything is pretty much shut down. You drive by the strip malls here, they're all closed. Starbucks, it's closed. McDonald's, it's closed. Everyone is by and large obeying the orders to let the authorities do their searches and go where they need to go to get things done. We're told about 350 law enforcement personnel are engaged in these searches, obviously on the ground there in Bowdoin, where Brian Todd just was, but they're also doing it from the air. We've seen helicopters zooming by all day and the Coast Guard involved as well. Why the Coast Guard? Because as we said, the suspect's car was found by a boat launch on the Andrew Scoggin River, so there is some concern that maybe he tried to get out, escape by water on one of the rivers here. And the ocean's not far from here either, Caitlin. You've got Booth Bay Harbor, you've got Portland not far from here. So there are all different kinds of avenues of possible escape, even though the greatest amount of activity we've seen in some ways is right where they would have started to begin with last night at the last known residence of this suspected shooter, Robert Carr, Caitlin. Yeah, who is still uh, somehow evading authorities. John Berman, we'll check back in with you if you get any updates in this hour. I want to go down to CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, and Catherine Schweit, who is a former senior FBI official who created and ran the Bureau's active shooter program after the massacre that happened at Sandy Hook. I'm so grateful to have both of you here tonight. John, I want to start with you because as we're looking at the police, clearly going back to what is the last known address of the suspected shooter. They were already there twice today. I mean, did they really think that this is someone who, who would return back to his home, which is obviously a place that the police are going to go after they find out who this guy is? You know, Caitlin, it was a question that they couldn't eliminate with a positive answer, which is they weren't able to say, we can say 100% that from the time of the shooting till now, he hasn't been in there. So they had to take the tactical position going in that we're going to do a dynamic entry 
um, as if he is in there. And as soon as we clear the house, then we're going to let the search team come and execute the search warrant. The problem was that a certain piece of technology um, that they were using began to detect um, movement uh, in the house or one of the outbuildings that caused the incident commander to say, full stop, we have to change posture, and now we have to do this as a surround and call out till we figure out what that movement is. Now, you know, you're talking to a guy whose radiation detection boats in the NYPD um, sometimes detected a shipment of granite on a cargo ship as being radiation. You know, technology is advanced, but it's not unfallible. And I think what we saw here tonight was given the suspect's prior actions, uh, allegedly, given the weaponry that he is familiar with and possessed, uh, they really had to change posture and go back on the assumption that they might have him in the house and treat it that way. Yeah, it seems to be that they don't think that. We don't know for sure, obviously. And Catherine, as we're seeing all of this play out, I mean, as you watch this, what does law enforcement do next? Here we are 24 hours in, we were covering this breaking story last night. He's still at large, so what happens now? Yeah, I think that sometimes it's easy for us when we watch television and movies to see an investigation as linear, but it really isn't. And the warrants are being executed all over the locations where this individual might have had contact, where a warrant could be obtained. But tips are coming in and law enforcement has to follow all of those tips. And they you follow it, as John said, you follow it till the end, until the answer is no. So until they're confident about every tip that comes in, even it could have been, you know, in some situation, somebody got a call. Uh, I thought I saw something at the house. As random as that is, to maybe to others, to law enforcement, it's like, OK, well, we got to go check it out. So that's what law enforcement is doing now as they continue to isolate and they can't search that house for evidence of a crime, uh, which they would be able to get a warrant to do until they're confident that they might, might, might not be confronted with somebody who's armed. Yeah, and John, as we wait to see what they could potentially glean from that, what they could get from that home, I mean, we are learning more about this shooter's, uh, the suspected shooter's background. I mean, you're hearing from sources that he previously reported mental health issues, hearing voices. He threatened to shoot up a National Guard base in the state. He spent two weeks in a medical facility over the summer. Have you learned more about about just the suspect himself? He's uh, been in the Army Reserves for 20 years, uh, coming on in 2002. Um, but he was never deployed in combat, even though um, there were uh, troops in Afghanistan, there were reservists in Iraq, um, in Syria, um, his specialty uh, was uh, petroleum delivery and logistics, which is making sure that you get the gas that runs the trucks, that runs the Jeeps, that runs the Humvees, um, and you get it to the right people at the training areas, and you get it to the right people to ship it where it needs to go. Uh, but on the other hand, um, in his private life, he had uh, a number of weapons that were the same as the weapons that he had trained on in his eight-week combat course um, in the Army Reserves, and he was known to his friends as an expert marksman, a hunter, a fisherman. So he would have been, um, literally and figuratively, right at home in, you know, uh, Lewiston, Maine, where you've got a suburban uh, city, but also lots of woods, lakes, rivers, and so on. Um, yeah, well... Go ahead. Uh, given that experience, I mean, because that's fascinating given where 
they found his car parked near this boating area. And so, Catherine, when you're looking at this and you're trying to analyze this, what John just laid out, that he has military training, that he has experience as a firearms trainer, that we know he is a fisherman, so he knows how to operate a boat. I mean, how do all of those three factors complicate this search for the authorities tonight? He's in his own backyard. I think that's what it tells us. He's in his own backyard, and we're coming into his backyard to try to find him in a game of hide-and-seek. He knows where, what, what he's looking for and, and where he's going to go. And he has a plan, and law enforcement has to follow those trails wherever they can find him until he makes a decision uh, to stop. So if he keeps going, that's just what we're facing. And I think for these kind of shooters, you know, a very, very small number of uh, these types of shooters, these active shooters, uh, go on the lam. Uh, most uh, 30 to 40 percent of them kill themselves or have police officers kill themselves, ha- kill them. And they, they are just very suicidal. So many of them stop as soon as they're done with their action and they just give up. They put their hands up. We saw that at Aurora. We saw that at so- Aurora Theater, so many other locations. They just give up. So when somebody leaves in, in, in this direction and he's gone, our average age of one of these shooters is 35. So he's fitting right into the profile of, mm-hmm. which it's not really a profile, right? But right into the average of what we think of as somebody who has mental uh, challenges, has tr- is a troubled person. They're going on a trajectory that's bad, and then they have access to weapons. It's a yeah. bad combination. It's a, I mean, it's dangerous for the public, of course, who's, who's living in this fear tonight. Uh, Catherine Schweit, John Miller, we'll check back in with you as we are monitoring this, keeping a very close eye on it. Thank you both. Uh, obviously, as all of this is breaking out, we are seeing several presidential candidates weighing in on the mass shooting, just the latest here in the United States. That includes my next guest, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, who is here in studio in just a moment. And tonight we are continuing to monitor the police activity that is still underway in Maine tonight as that manhunt is going on for the shooting suspect, Robert Card. We're going to bring you the updates as we have them here in Washington. You saw today President Biden ordering White House flags lowered to half staff as a mark of respect for the 18 victims so far. On that note, I want to turn to someone who is running to be in the White House, Florida governor and 2024 Republican presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis here live for his first interview on The Source. Thank you, Governor, uh, for being here on this tragic shooting that has happened in Maine. You put out a statement earlier today saying, while the facts are still coming in, this could be another example of a failure of our nation's mental health system. Do you believe that a red flag law like the one in your state would have prevented this? No, but I think we have uh, mental health uh, adjudications where if you are adjudicated and you're committed, then you're somebody that would would potentially be out of circulation. I mean, I think he obviously was a well-trained individual. There were these flags when he was training. He did go to the hospital. I think the question is, is is why wasn't he uh, committed beyond that? We'll probably figure out uh, going forward. But uh, clearly, this is a guy that's very dangerous because he's got the training and then he seems to have had a breakdown. Yeah, but if the red flag, why do you not think the red flag law, a red flag law, like the one that's in Florida that we have, seen been used because multiple he already, times, for, he already had there. firearms he's a well-trained individual um i think the the idea that he was just out I, mean, I think these are things that he probably had so in this case i'm not sure i think an involuntary commitment though would have kept him off the street and i think that would have probably done the trick 
But if he had these concerns over the summer, I mean, he was saying that he was hearing voices. We don't know if it was voluntary or involuntary. We just know that he did go to a facility, a medical facility, for about two weeks. I mean, you look at the red flag law in your state. That is something that it was passed before you were governor. But when you were running, you said that you would have vetoed that. Do you not think it's been effective in your state? But that that's a different situation than a mental health. So, so we've always had, and I've always, if you're not mentally competent, uh, to, to own a firearm, that's something different than red flag. What red flag is, is people would go in and say, you may be a danger. So you could have someone lodge a complaint. Different states do it differently, oftentimes with not adequate due process. But I would say that's different from the mental health. I think most people agree that if you're not mentally competent, uh, with rights come responsibilities, and, and exercising the rights means you have the mental a- competency. So I don't think it's an issue with red flag. I think red flag has been abused because people can just lodge a complaint. Sometimes they'll take somebody's uh, firearms. And here's the thing. It's not even Second Amendment as much as a Fifth Amendment due process issue. Can you take someone's property without having an adjudication? Uh, so, so I think it's different. I don't think it would have mattered. In this case, I do think a commitment an involuntary commitment would have done the trick. I think there are questions about what it, whether it would have been a factor here. Obviously, we're still learning more about this, but I mean, this is a law that you have in your state. Do, does it work in Florida? Well, in this, in a situation like this, it, flaw, it would not be Just not generally, be does it work in the state of Florida, though? You know, I, I, I was not something that I supported because I, I, I was concerned about the due process uh, rights of, of individuals. Now, our crime rates at a 50-year low. I don't think it's because of that. I think it's because that we've supported law enforcement. Uh, we have strong laws to hold criminals accountable and put them off the street. So I'd say if you look at why is Florida's crime declining while it's going up in places like California, I think it's probably more for our overall approach than that. If you don't think it's effective in Florida, you don't think it's contributing to those to those lower rates, why is it still in place? Why don't you move to repeal it? I mean, because, you've got a Republican supermajority. Because the Republicans passed it in the legislature before before I was governor. I mean, they they all they all voted. Oh, right, but they all voted on it. I I was a candidate at the time. There was um, different restrictions that I thought violated the Constitution. So I said I would have vetoed the bill. It passed overwhelmingly. Uh, and there's not an appetite amongst them to re- reverse their votes, basically, and what they did just a few years ago. Has any of it be, since being governor changed your opinion on how effective it is? I mean, there is a Polk County Sheriff, Grady Judd, who you are very familiar with. He's a conservative. He's a supporter of yours. He thinks these red flag laws in Florida are actually very effective. Well, I, think, I think you have different, uh, different perspectives on that. I mean, I think Grady and some of the other sheriffs like it. I think some others have said that it's, it's not something that's effective. But, but Grady, understand, he's a big supporter of the Second Amendment. So he is not using that in a way to try to fridge people's rights. Uh, he's following due process. And he's going about it in a way that does respect that. I think you see how some of these things get put in other states. And um, it's more of just an end run around the Second Amendment because they just don't like the underlying right to begin with. So point blank, though, do you think that red flag laws are effective generally? I don't think there's been data to suggest the red flag laws have been effective. I mean, Even I, in Florida? I, I, don't, I don't think. I mean, I think, I think it's anecdotal when people say this or that. Um, but I think what's ultimately effective is holding people ac- accountable either through mental adjudication, if they're, if they're crazy, or uh, convicting them when they're committing crimes. I mean, a lot of the people that commit crimes, I mean, obviously a shooting like this, catastrophic, a lot of people. The typical uh, uh, crimes that are being committed where one or two people may get killed, they don't get as much press, but it's almost always somebody who's been in the justice system multiple times, and then they finally commit a really serious offense. So identifying those people and holding them accountable 
when they're committing crimes, that is the way you reduce the crime rate. So it's safe to say a President DeSantis would not sign any kind of national red flag law. And no, no, I don't think that'd be appropriate at all. So what is, if you're president tonight and you're the one lowering those flags to half staff at the White House, what's your, what's well, your solution we're gonna to do, fix what we, happened? We, well, two things. I think, I think the mental, mental health issue in our country, part of it is we do need more institutionalization. There are some people who are dangerous to society. A lot of them get put back on the streets that will require more resources, but I, but I think that that's appropriate. And it's not, this is obviously a, a very serious, there's other crimes. You talk to people in, um, in, in jail, sheriffs, a lot of the people that end up in the justice system have mental problems. And so we've not done a good job with that. Now on the, on the other side, on the crime, we're gonna hold people accountable. If you commit a gun crime, you're going to go away for a long time. If you're committing, if some of these prosecutors in these blue states are letting people out. This guy had out, no, the, no previous history with any kind of gun crimes. Yeah, but crimes if you look at most seen. of the crimes that are committed in this country, it's people that have been in the justice system before and have gotten a slap on the wrist. That's happening all over this country, uh, and we will hold people accountable. But about this situation specifically, what would you do? I mean, he had no prior criminal background. But he had a mental, he got referred to a mental hospital. So, so we're gonna, if it's well, not a red gonna, flag law, which there is not well, one in Maine, what's gonna, the mechanism gonna, for taking the guns away from someone who says that he's hearing voices and is threatening to shoot something up? The mental is not about the red flag. When people are adjudicated, if there's a, a commitment mentally, then that is something that means, okay, you have to have responsibility to exercise rights. Uh, it's not the same thing as a red flag. On, uh, but the red flag is for if there's troubling behavior, if someone's saying that they're hearing voices, you know they have guns, you could, I mean, that is what the red flag law in Florida does, and, the, and they no, can go that, to a not, law not, enforcement not source. Not quite that, but I, but I think when you're talking about the mental, you got to be serious about, okay, recognizing warning signs, you have to have uh, systems in place, and we actually do a pretty good job of this in Florida, where you see that, because we've had situations in the past where you take this stuff seriously. But you have uh, a and red you don't flag just, law. That's not, that's not what it is. It's, it's for, like in schools, if you have somebody that's making threats, we, we take those very seriously. And I think what happens in these cases is you see that there were a lot of warning signs and people didn't act on them. So you have to act people on them. People did act on them. And, and, and that's, that's why he went for two weeks to a medical facility because the other reservist with him reported that he was having issues and threatening to shoot up the base. Okay, and then what happened, right? Did they, did they follow through? That's why my was question is if the red more? flag law would be helpful here, and you're saying you don't think it would. You mentioned mental health resources. We hear a lot of that from Republicans after a mass shooting. But what specifically would you do if you're president with that funding? What's the program? How much money is it? What does that actually look like? I'd want to have more uh, uh, facilities for involuntary commitment. I think that we used to do higher levels of involuntary commitment. The pendulum swung a lot to the other direction. I'm not saying it needs to go all the way back where it was, but I do think that we need to recognize that there are some people whose behavior is a danger to community and danger to society that right now are getting put back on the street. Uh, and I'd want there to be a mechanism to, to do that. I think realistically, you, know, you have to have the resources in place and the facilities in place to do that. So instead of taking someone's guns away, you think putting someone in an institution is, is the solution to what we saw happen in Maine. Is that right? If he was institutionalized, he would not have been able to commit this, this offense 100%. I mean, that's, that goes without saying. Um, if somebody's back on the street, then they can always uh, hurt somebody. You and it doesn't mean that you just have, you know, it's not like, like, I mean, what, you take one firearm, like they can't get others or they can't use other things to be able to harm people. When people are this, I mean, they can do a lot of damage, especially someone like that that has military training.
Yeah, I just think some people would raise questions about, you know, you're talking about his rights if you take guns away, but if he's being institutionalized. But I want to well, talk no, about... But, but, that, but there's a process for that, too. I'm not saying you don't have a process for that. I'm not saying you just snap your finger and do that. Well, we we have a long history. A well, we have had a long history in this country of handling mental health in different ways. I think now we've gone a little bit more liberal. I think you see that uh, affecting a lot of problems that we have in society. And so, but that, if he had been involuntarily committed then clearly this would not have happened. You can't say that with anything else. Well, I think people would say, is that the solution or is it is it something with restricting gun ownership? But I want to talk about Israel because... But you can't, to, though. If, if you have been adjudicated mentally, you are not able in this country to I purchase that a is firearm. The federal, yes. That is the federal law. Is there any gun restriction that you would sign into place if you were president? Any law restricting gun ownership? Restricting Second Amendment rights? I'm going to uphold the Constitution. Just asking if there's anything. Uh, on Israel, though, as I mentioned, there are two cargo planes that you had set up that took, that your office has said today, taking supplies to Israel, drones, helmets, other things for first responders to be using. If you were president tonight, as President Biden is doing, sending about 900 U.S. forces to the Middle East, a lot of firepower that we've seen in, in the area, do you think that is the right step? Do you agree with him? So I, I think the most important thing is to stand with Israel, both publicly and privately, and back their ability to wipe Hamas out go to the hilt, uproot the tunnels, do everything they need to do so this never happens again. That's the most important thing. Uh, and I think that's pretty much what they want. Now, I don't think it's necessarily America's fight. I think we should support Israel, uh, how we get involved. Now, clearly we have an interest with the hostages that are there, some of whom are American, and I would work with Israel to be able to recover those folks. Uh, and I'm not sure what Biden's using those people for. I do know he's got people in Iraq and Syria who are being targeted by, by Iran. They're kind of just sitting ducks uh, I'm not sure that that's the best policy either. So what's the best policy? Removing troops from Syria or ordering a U.S. military response to that? Well, I think what's the rationale for them? I would only have them there if there was a clear American interest involved. Uh, I don't know the Do Biden's articulated. I don't one? know the Biden's articulated that. But let me just say this as president: but, if I mean, somebody harms a U.S. service member, harm one hair on their head. Uh, they will have hell to pay uh, if I'm president. We're not going to let people take pot shots at our military members. Uh, Iran should know that. Anybody should know that. We are going to defend our people. And that would be a U.S. military response? It means we will defend our people and we will do what we need to do to say you don't mess with American troops. Governor Ron DeSantis, stick around. We have a few more questions for you on Israel. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after a quick moment. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. And Florida governor in 2024, Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is back here with me. We were just talking about Israel and the flights that you have arranged for getting Americans out of Israel, something that was obviously a huge issue in the early days of this war. If you were president, what would your plan be to get the hundreds of Americans who are in Gaza out? Well, you have to marshal assets that we have. A lot of the stuff would be clandestine. You got to work with the Israeli government uh, to, to coordinate to see what you can do. But those, uh, those hostage rescue efforts are, those are very sensitive things. Those are very high risk maneuvers. But clearly when we have Americans that are being held by a terrorist group, 
uh, we would marshal resources to be able to rescue them. But not even just the hostages. I'm talking about the hundreds of American citizens who were in Gaza, and of course they can't get out now. Egypt is not letting anyone out. Israel, of course, is not letting anyone out of Gaza. What would you do to get those Americans who were uh, yeah, living no, in a I war mean, zone? Obviously, I would, I would want to help, just like we helped in Florida. There were Americans that were stuck in Israel. They couldn't get out. Uh, we ended up bringing almost 700 home. Uh, we're all Americans, and most of them were Floridians, and we were folk, but, but we didn't do only Floridians. We understood that there's others that needed. But I think the interesting thing about what I saw, because we've greeted the first flight that we brought back, 271 people, yeah. 91 children. So you literally are having families come out with their dog, their kids, and then, you know, they're very happy to see my wife and I when we greeted them. But one of the ladies told me, she pointed to her six-year-old daughter, she said, her, and they're from Florida, Daughter just kept saying, Mommy, I don't want to hear the rockets. I don't want to hear the rockets. I want Florida. I want Florida. So we were able to get that done. But what would you do to get the Americans out of Gaza, though? Well, I would I would give them transport. If but uh, you know I I, but I need to, I would to need to know to the, the intelligence. There? I, mean, I would, would need to know like? the intelligence. I would need to know the the battlefield. I would need to know all that information. But I would definitely let it be known to Hamas that uh, uh, harming Americans is very high risk for them, and that they should they should they should cough them up. Everything we've just talked about, what you would do if you were in office and a mass shooting happened, what you would do if you were in office and what happened in Israel has happened, none of that is necessarily matters if you don't become the Republican nominee, if you don't go against Joe Biden in the race for the White House. You obviously are still far behind Trump in the polls. Obviously, there are multiple sh polls showing that. You've criticized him on what he said about Benjamin Netanyahu. You've criticized him on abortion. But you never talk about Trump himself. What do you make of Trump's character? Well, look, I mean, at, at the end of the day, to me, I'm about results and I'm about outcomes. I mean, Donald Trump's well-documented the different, the different things in that regard. Uh, for me, it's who's going to be able to deliver the results. I'll be able to do that uh, as the president. Uh, now, he did, did some things I'll give him credit for, but he also promised things that he didn't deliver. So the question is, is moving forward, uh, how do you actually get America on the right track? How do we reverse this decline? And, and I think we need a new leader, someone that can serve eight years, two, two four-year terms, and someone that's going to be ready on day one to really be energetic, have some vitality and some vigor, and get the job done. But that's not answering the question about his character. What do you make because of Donald Trump's character? Because it's not a concern of mine. I mean, I Why think, is it not a concern? Think, You're running against him because you clearly believe that you should be president over him. Well, that's because I think I'd be a better president than he is. But I mean, I don't need to, to take uh, pot shots I mean, at his character. I mean, some people like to do that. I focus on pot shot. The why, character why, of the president matters. Why I would be a better president. And I think the reasons are is because... I have a demonstrated record of delivering on 100% of my promises like I did in Florida. I'll be focused. I'll be disciplined. I'm not going to be distracted. It's not going to be about my issues. It'll be about the American people's issues day after day. And we have the prices are too high. The interest rates are too high. The border's wide open. Our military's not strong enough. Uh, we have crime in the cities, a big, big bureaucracy run amok. We have all these problems. We need to solve them, not talk about them, not sloganeer about them. But why is that message not resonating with Republican voters? I think, it, I think it is. When you get on the ground in, in, in Iowa, for example, so th there's 99 counties. Uh, the tradition is to do all 99. They call it the full Grassley. I've done 83 of the 99. A lot of these rural counties, 
There'll be counties where there'll may, may be a few thousand people. We'll get 100 people to show up um, at an event. You shake the hands, you answer the questions. That's not something you're necessarily going to see in polling. That's something that comes out when people make their decisions to caucus. So we're doing it the right way. I'm going to be the only candidate that does all 99 counties. We've just started similar in New Hampshire on there on Tuesday. I was with Governor Sununu. We did seven different events. Uh, town halls, house parties, retail stops. That's what you got to do. You got to show up. Donald Trump's not willing to show up. He's missing in action right now. He doesn't show up. When he does show up, he reads off the teleprompter for 50 minutes, and then he gets back on the plane and goes home. Uh, As voters are more keyed in, as we get closer to the holidays, uh, you're not going to be able to get away with with not putting in the work. Uh, So we're going to put in the work, and we're going to get the job done. Well, right now he is getting away with what you say is not putting in the work. I mean, he's leading the polls. Yeah, but that's because he's the most famous person running, 100% name ID, He's the person people know. When you actually drill down in these early states, clearly he's got some that'll vote for him no matter what, but there's a lot more that aren't going to vote for him in the primary. Then you got a lot of voters who they like his policies, they like a lot about him, but they are willing to vote for somebody else. So it's incumbent upon a guy like me, go out and make the case. I'll tell you, we were in South Carolina last week, did a, did a bunch of rallies, shaking hands after. Every other person said to me, you flip me. Now, I didn't ask them what that, who, who they flipped, but I'm pretty much sure that it, they flipped from Trump to me. So that's what you have to do for the Are next three months. Are you moderating the way that you're running? Because you seem to be running to the right of Donald Trump initially, signing that six-week abortion ban, signing that permitless concealed carry. You were making sure you finished your legislative session in Florida before. Now you're talking yeah, about but, going but for the voters who don't constitutional carry like is, that's like a majority of the states have that. That's a, that's a normal mainstream no, Second Amendment the, position. To, you're so, but I think, the I think, of itself I think is the that thing you were initially is, running to the right and it seems like you're moderating. Is I, that the I case? I don't think I've changed. I think I am what I am. I think I'll run the same now like I will next, next November. Um, but here's the thing. I'm more reliable on policy than Donald Trump and Republican voters, you know, I think are starting to see that and we'll we'll show that. Uh, I've delivered more uh, on American first principles than anybody uh, in the country and not just this most recent legislative session, all through my time as governor. So so we'll see that. But here's the thing I think is true. I have shown an ability to be bold, to do big things, but then to actually win independent voters. In Florida, we won by a million and a half votes. I mean, we won independence by by 18%. Donald Trump would not be able to do that. And we need somebody that's going to be able to win the election. Very important that you get that done. And you don't think Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden? I I, I don't. I mean, I think that um, I I think that. Would you endorse him if he is the nominee? Well, I've already said that I signed the pledge. I'm supporting the Republican nominee. Do you think it's real? Well, for me, it is. I mean, I think when when you sign something, I know some people don't, don't do that. But when I agreed to participate in the debates, I knew what that meant. I knew whoever comes out of that process. But here's the thing. I'm not just going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to do follow the process, respect the people's will. I think ultimately, you know, they'll make the judgment that, that I'm the best foot forward. And I think we'll get it done. But look, at the end of the day, um, I'm not going to just cry in the corner. I mean, I think Biden needs to be defeated, and I think a Republican needs to do it. Okay, so that's a yes. Governor Ron DeSantis, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for joining us for the first time here on The Source. Thank you. And of course, just a moment, we'll go back to the ground in Maine. That massive manhunt is still underway after those two mass shootings that happened last night, two locations in Maine. There's been a lot of activity tonight. We'll give you an update in just a moment. Police in Maine have spent hours tonight focused on the suspect's home. It is his last known address. And tonight, for the second time, officers have been at this house today. It's cautious, step-by-step movements that we have been watching all day, trying to figure out 
as they are trying to figure out where this suspect is more than 24 hours after he allegedly, we believe, committed two mass shootings. The scenes in towns across southern Maine have been swarmed with federal and local officers combing the streets from the Coast Guard to the FBI. Law enforcement agencies, both big and small, are throwing all of their resources at this massive manhunt tonight. They're looking for the man who destroyed the sense of safety in Lewiston, Maine and the surrounding communities. 18 people went out for a night of bowling, cornhole, or just for dinner, but now will never come home. Of the 13 others who were shot, we are told that eight remain in the hospital tonight. These communities, of course, are being gripped by terror more than 24 hours later. Everyone is being told to stay inside their homes, to lock their doors, as police are hunting for a 40-year-old Army reservist. I'm joined now by CNN's Brian Todd, who is in Bowdoin, Maine, as we checked in with him at the beginning of the hour. Brian, you've been watching this all play out tonight. What do we know about where police are focusing their efforts and how that changes now that it's dark outside? Well, Caitlin, what I can tell you is in the last few minutes, a law enforcement officer came up to our position here and advised us that basically this is no longer a scene, indicating that law enforcement has pretty much extracted itself from this scene. And we witnessed that. We witnessed several vehicles leaving here a short time ago. It is complete darkness now behind me, as you can see, at the home of Robert Card. But we can tell you that for the last two and a half to three hours, it certainly was a scene. They had converged with pretty, you know, uh, I, I would say, uh, I, I would say some serious force to the house. Uh, a lot of law enforcement vehicles, personnel, air assets, canine teams, they had fanned out actually in a field next to the house as well. They trained a spotlight on the house. Uh, they, they operated their drones and their spotlight to try to figure out if something or someone was inside the house. And then they started a one-way dialogue. A, a law enforcement officer on a bullhorn started to call out to whoever may have been in the house to say, come out with your hands up, come out with nothing in your hands, follow our instructions. Uh, they said that they didn't want anybody else to get hurt. And they even kind of spoke to anyone in there uh, who, who may have been in there on a personal level saying, we understand this could be intimidating for you. But um, most indications we have now are that the suspect may really not have been in the house. The uh, law enforcement officials here in Maine have told us that this is kind of due diligence that they had to uh, exercise here, that it was unknown whether anyone was in the house at the time or not, but this is what they had to do. So they did converge on this for the second time today, I should say. They were here earlier today and came in with flashbangs uh, to rush the house and then, uh, then extract it again. So I think they were trying to, of course, determine whether anyone or anything was inside, and they spent quite a lot of time here. So for a while there, we thought it was almost a stand a standoff developing, Caitlin, but it appears they were really just being extremely careful in their movements around that house with a spotlight and a bullhorn. Yeah, and it also just shows you how much they are still very much having this manhunt underway even tonight. Brian Todd on the ground will continue to check back in with you as you see updates. Much more on this manhunt. The inside, as they are shooting and are looking into the profile of the suspected shooter and what that could tell them as this goes on. We'll be back in just a moment. Back to the manhunt in Maine tonight. This is for the suspect in last night's double mass shooting that killed 18 people and injured more than a dozen. Joining me now is retired FBI supervisory special agent and CNN's law enforcement contributor, Steve Moore. Steve, I'm so glad you're here tonight because the fact that this suspect Thanks. has been on the run for more than 24 hours now, I mean, as time goes on, how much more difficult does this search get for the suspected shooter? 
Well, it gets exponentially larger because, uh, you know, as, as the search uh, area goes out, as the possibility of, of his location gets larger and larger and larger, um, it becomes much more than you have the manpower to cover. And you have to change tactics and get into a, a uh, kind of a different type of fugitive investigation. And so given that, I mean, it's not even just that they're searching a heavily wooded area at night right now. I mean, they're also using the Coast Guard is involved with this because we do know that he is a fisherman, that his car was found near a boating area. I mean, what layer does that add to this search? This this complicates it uh, like like nothing else. Uh, and, and what you have to do here is instead of saying we're going to now look for finding him physically, putting eyes on him, you have to start looking at other ways. Uh, contacts, friends, you trace uh, phones. It's it's all these things, all the electronics, all the new technology that will lead you closer to him it, with the addition of the old-fashioned stuff, finding people and telling them uh, who know him, uh, we need information and having people on the street saying, you know, we saw somebody. And given that John Miller was reporting earlier that the locations seem to have a kind of a through line, that this suspect had broken up with his girlfriend recently, that some of the places that he went to, the bowling alley, the restaurant, were places that either they had gone or that he believed she may be. I mean, how are they using those potential clues to, to track where he could be now? I think what they're doing is, you know, obviously, I, I think uh, the bowling alley, as as John said, and the, and the bar probably were haunts of his and haunts of his friends. What I would be doing if I were working this case is going to other places where his friends said he hung out and looking at those. I'd want to know if he cased the place, uh, if he was there uh, looking at it uh, well beforehand. Um, it's it, that way you can guide your investigation where he might be next. Yeah. Questions about what the planning could be here. Steve Moore, as we continue to follow this, we'll check back in with you. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for joining us in this very busy hour. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right after a quick break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 